We are continuing to talk about the gospel according to Satan. Eight lies about God that sound like the truth. We are finishing it up today. Uh, and, and so we're talking about very serious things, right? Things that literally they sound like they're true, but they're twisted just enough uh, that they're lies and they miss the whole point of the gospel. Um, so if you remember where this all started, in the garden, Satan told Eve she'd be like God if she ate of the tree that he commanded her not to eat. Uh, obviously, that was not true. And the funny thing is, she already was like God in every way that she should have been. Uh, it sounded like truth. So Satan's telling her, God is holding out on you. He doesn't want what's best for you. But it was a lie. And many of those lies of the same nature pop up today, that God is holding out on us. He doesn't want what's best for us. And we know better. So last time I was here, if you remember, um, it was like a month ago, like Trey said. But we talked about two lies. Uh, you need to live your truth and your feelings are reality. And so today we're going to wrap up the whole series by talking about your life is what you make it, in parentheses, so let's make it rock. And you need to let go and let God. Okay, we're going to work from the outside in. This is what we did last time. So we talked about how the unbelieving world kind of believes these lies, and then we shifted focus to talk about how we, as the church, believe these lies. And the reason we're doing this is because I think it's really easy to point fingers and laugh at the unbelieving world and how they believe these lies and not recognize that we do the exact same thing. We believe these lies uh, sometimes in lesser ways, but still in, in uh, important and uh, God-dishonoring ways. So it's important to look at ourselves as well. And just, it's good to start off by remembering how we measure truth. So we don't measure truth by our feelings, which is what we talked about last time, but by scripture. Um, so I'm going to read Acts 17.11 real quick. If you want to turn there with me, feel free. Acts 17.11 says, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul had preached to them, and in order to test what he was saying, they examined the scriptures to see if those things were so, which is what we need to be doing. We should be doing the same thing. So we measure lies not by how we feel about them, but how they measure up with Scripture. So, first lie. Life's what you make it. In parentheses. So let's make it rock. Okay, Kylie Jenner. Sorry. Kylie Jenner is now worth around a billion dollars. Maybe a little less after COVID. Let's hope. She is 23 years old. My personal net worth is maybe more than zero, a little bit, but I don't know. It's certainly not 1,000 million dollars, which is what a billion dollars is. 1,000 millions. Whoa. This girl is younger than me and worth much more money than I will ever have. And the best part about it is she is self-made. She's self-made. Some fancy news site that rhymes with Paul Beat Rernal said... She's on track to be the youngest self-made billionaire ever. Now, we can all kind of laugh at that because obviously Kylie Jenner is not self-made. If you know nothing about Kylie Jenner, God bless you and thank you for being here today. But I'm going to have to tell you a little bit about her for the sake of the lesson, so I apologize. Long story short, Kylie has benefited immensely from her family connections. She's born into a family that's famous for being famous, among other illicit things, and she's capitalizing on it. So she very well might be smart and hardworking. I don't, I don't know her at all. Uh, but 
To call her self-made is something else entirely. It's hard to imagine that Kylie's little empire of makeup, I don't, I don't know what she does. Uh, I don't know that that would have ever come about if she wasn't already part of the existing Kardashian empire, right? So calling her self-made is probably not the best thing we could do. Is your life what you make it, though? Is that the truth? Uh, the world certainly wants you to believe that. Advertisers, General Mills wants you to believe that if you've ever seen a Cheerios commercial. Eleanor Roosevelt evidently wants you to believe that because she said it. Hannah Montana lives by these words. Life's what you make it, so let's make it rock. I am now going to read very seriously some lyrics from that song. Please pay attention. Life's what you make it, so let's make it rock. Things are looking up anytime you want. All you got to do is realize that it's under your control. So let the good times rock and roll. Come on, everybody. Do it now. All right, let's get the party started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's a party. Yeah, yeah. Put your hands together. So, I mean, that's, that's good stuff. Um, much of the world wants you to believe that you are powerful enough to literally alter your life circumstances and make yourself rich or cool or pretty or whatever if you want to. You just got to make it happen. You can make a name for yourself is what they're saying, right? You can make a name for yourself. There was this book that came out a while ago called The Secret. It was in Oprah's book club, so there you go. Uh, it is an embarrassing book about how thinking positive thoughts can literally alter your life circumstances. Um, I thought this book was over and done with. I don't know when this came out. Trey, do you know when this came out? You haven't read it? Okay. Dang. Um, I thought people had forgotten about this, but they just made a movie on Netflix called The Secret Dare to Dream. I don't know what that's about either, and if they make a secret cinematic universe, I will throw up. Um, but that being said, how insulting is this lie, your life's what you make it, to people who have cancer? How insulting is this lie to people who are homeless or to people who have depression? You're, people are telling them, life's what you make it, cheer up and make your life great. Is it not great? It must be your fault. If you just thought positively, your life would be better. Uh, guys, that's, it's like the definition of insanity. Uh, to think that what you think can alter reality. Um, if, if you think that, you, you have to think that you're like some kind of demigod. And there's about like a billion examples of you not being a demigod. And there's about zero examples of you being a demigod. So it's, it's just not, it doesn't make any sense to think that if you think positive thoughts, you can alter reality. Uh, you can make a name for yourself. One great example in the early days of scripture of somebody trying to make a name for themselves is uh, those who constructed the Tower of Babel. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis 11. Uh, we can read a few verses from there. Genesis 11, verses 4 and 5. Okay, Genesis 11, 4 and 5. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
So these builders were listening to the Hannah Montana of their day. I imagine her name was Mesopotamia Mary. Hannah Montana, Mesopotamia Mary. Really funny. Okay. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They thought, life's what we make it. So they tried to make it rock. And what does the Lord do in verse 5? He actually comes down to see it. They're like, hey, the tops in the heavens is the biggest thing ever. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And the Lord is like, I, gotta, I can't quite see it from where I'm at. I'm going to come down there and look at it. Uh, he has to stoop down to come look. And the, the irony is the very reason they built this, this tower, was so they wouldn't be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And that's exactly what happens. It led to their dispersal. The name that they thought they'd make for themselves, right? The point of the story is they're trying to make a name for themselves. It's nothing compared to the name of God who created all of them. He created the materials that they were using to make this tower, which is tiny in his eyes. He has to come down to see it. And uh, so now I think it's worth mentioning why God hates this life's what you make it attitude. Um, why, can anybody guess, why do you think God hates this life's what you make it attitude? I'm really good at awkward silence, so. Yeah, definitely. Um, life's what he makes it. Uh, and at the core of it, as, we, as we've already seen, is us trying to make a name for ourselves. So it's us playing God. Rather than image-bearing God, which is a good thing that we should do, this is us trying to overthrow God, to usurp God. Your life's what you make it is at the core the same lie as you will be like God, which is what the serpent told Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. So this is more than just simple disobedience or like a, like a, or a meaningless sin. It's insurrection, right? This is us literally trying to make ourselves God. It's doing everything we can to be God. We're not satisfied with what he's given us, so we're gonna go take more than what we should uh, because it's our life. So I mentioned this earlier, but the saddest part about this lie, and many of these lies, is how there's this continual belief that God is holding out on us, that he doesn't want what's best for us. Adam and Eve believe that in the garden. God doesn't want what's best for me. He won't provide it. I'm going to go get it. Uh, and this is by far the saddest thing about this lie. Israel as well constantly believed this, that God was holding out on them, uh, that he didn't want what's best for them. So I'm going to read a few examples of where they uh, believe this in the Old Testament. Exodus 16, 2 through 3, if you want to turn there. Uh, and, and I'm going to read three different passages where they do the same thing. Uh, but I think it's worth reading all of them because they, they constantly believe this, and so do we. Exodus 16, 2 to 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So think about this. These people have literally been delivered from slavery. They're free, and they want to go back because they think God is holding out on them. He doesn't want what's best for them. He's going to kill them in the wilderness. After they saw the seas parted and their enemies drowned, they're like, yeah, I want to I go back to slavery because I'm going to die. God doesn't care. N very next chapter, Exodus 17, verse 3. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, 
Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So again, God's miraculously delivered them. They've seen all these plagues, but they get a little thirsty and it all falls apart. God no longer has their best in mind, in their, in their mind. Uh, and last one I'll read, Numbers 14, so a few more books forward. Numbers 14, verses two to three. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So again, they, they complain, they want to go back. And just recognize the New Testament equivalent of this is you being delivered from your sin, from the slavery of sin, and complaining that you can't go back to it, that you can't live in sin any longer. So we make fun of these Israelites and we think they want to go back to slavery, they're insane. But we do it too, we want to return to our sin. We think God is holding out on us, he doesn't want what's best for us, so we need to go make our lives what we want ourselves. The best news that you could ever hear is that God is not holding out on you. He wants what best, what's best for you. Uh, the thing is, what you think is best for you and what is actually best for you are two totally separate things. So, or could be two totally separate things. Um, so the two-year-old who wants to touch the hot stove, he's like, this is what's best for me. Um, the adult is like, no, actually, that's not what's best for you. So you might think, man, if I just had more charisma like this person, I'd be okay and God won't give it to me. If I just had more money, more popularity, better looks, more friends, a better job, this guy, this girl, whatever. When in reality, what, what's best for you might be to just learn dependence on the Lord and his power to be shown in your weakness. So how do we know that God isn't holding out on us, that he knows what's best and wants what's best for us? I mean, the one universal answer is the gospel, the cross. It's proven on the cross. Though you're a sinner, Though you rebel against this holy God every day and try to overthrow him in little ways all the time, he still condescended as a man, Jesus, took the form of a servant and died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He came that you might be reconciled to a holy God, which you would have never been able to do for yourself. So you can try to make your life whatever you want. You, you would have never been able to bridge the gap between you and God because of your sin, no matter how hard you work. Though you rebel, Jesus obeyed and took your sin on the cross if you'd only have faith in him by trusting his sacrifice and turning away from sin. So tell me that God doesn't have the best in mind for you after dwelling on the cross, after dwelling on the gospel, uh, and I'll happily tell you that you are deluded. I think if you look at this objectively, this God has your absolute best in mind, and your absolute best is for the penalty and prison of sin to be removed, for you to have communion with a holy God again, for you to be adopted into his family as a son, a co-heir with Christ, to one day raise again from the grave and reign alongside Christ. This is something you would have never achieved on your own, right? No matter how self-made you are. And friends, this is the gospel. So if you're not a Christian here, please consider these things. Uh, think about them. The best thing for you might be better than you could have ever imagined. So you're shooting really low if you just want a Ferrari, Actually, the best thing for you is much better than that. It's reconciliation to a holy God despite your sin through Christ. So you might think the best thing for you is a job, a girl, a guy, recognition, money, 
political prowess, family, travel, whatever. But the best thing for you is infinitely better, reconciliation, despite your sinfulness through the cross of Christ. C.S. Lewis had some quote about uh, how we're playing with mud when there's a beach like nearby. Uh, And that's what we're doing here. All these things you want in this life are mud. Why would you settle for mud to play in mud when there's a beach? So my non-Christian friend in the room, turn from your sin, turn toward Christ, trust in his sacrifice, drink freely from this fountain of goodness, be reconciled to God, adopted into his family to one day rise from the dead and reign with Christ. Christians in the room, in case you think you're immune to this type of thinking, uh, you're not, I'm not. It might be more difficult to spot, uh, but it's often there. So many of us have this bootstraps mentality where we think if we work harder, we'll have more success, whether that's money or family or anything. It's kind of just the way that Americans think, right? Cheers, H2O. Okay, so this isn't necessarily untrue, that if you work harder, uh, you, will, you will get more. There's some proverbial wisdom in it, no doubt. And I certainly think, I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard. We should work hard to glorify the Lord. However, we can, we can twist that so easily, right? Uh, we can think that our lives are what we make them, so we should make them rock. But recognize that this isn't one-to-one. You could work hard your entire life, really hard, every day, uh, and achieve relatively little worldly success. That could happen. Why? Because your life isn't what you make it. Like Jacob said earlier, it's what God makes it, right? If he doesn't make you monetarily rich or married or healthy, are you going to be upset? Are you going to be like, God, I did these things. Why can you not do these things for me? Um, and so we, we easily forget that the gospel is not a means to an end, right? God isn't Santa Claus or some computer program where you like put in X and out comes Y because there's this formula in the middle. You shouldn't work hard to make your earthly life comfortable to an extent, right? You should work hard to give glory to God and be a better image bearer of him. Uh, and I'm speaking to myself here for sure. So my motivations for working hard are twisted pretty often. Um, twisted toward myself and making my life what I want to be rather than to honor the Lord uh, and work hard for him. So we all have to recognize that in an instant, by God's providence, it could all be gone. Everything that we've worked for, right? You could have a terrible diagnosis. Your house could get flooded. Insurance won't cover it. You could lose your job in a rough situation, be out of work for six months. Your girlfriend or boyfriend could break up with you. But if you are satisfied in Christ alone, it won't be the end of the world, right? If you have an eternal perspective, it won't be the end of the world. If you weren't trying to make your life what you want it to be, it won't be the end of the world. Um... So these things often are the end of the world to us. Uh, One person that I know wanted to renovate her kitchen, and when she couldn't because they had to repair a water pipe instead, she said, quote, there goes my hopes and dreams, renovating her kitchen. It's really sad. Our, Our hopes and dreams, right, should be eternal, not temporary. So God often uses temporary hardship to remind us of an eternal perspective. Uh, And one member of this church, I think, who knows this really well and is dealing with this is Nancy Hannon. Um, If you guys don't know Nancy Hannon, she is like really ill um, and facing heaven closely. I mean, it's coming. And, uh, you know, we've just heard stories and we met with them a month or two ago about how 
she is, she's seen heaven as so much sweeter than she ever has because it's an end to her suffering. Um, so heaven is much better than what we'll go through here. And the things that we go through here, like Nancy is knowing right now, actually are going to make heaven sweeter when we get there. So let's not try to make our lives what we want them to be, but rather honor God in all that we do and trust him with the outcome. Okay, second lie. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. So there is this theology, which I had never heard of until I started preparing for this, called Keswick Higher Life Theology. Never heard of it. Has anybody here ever heard of that? Sweet. All right, I wasn't the only one. Um, It's spelled Keswick. Why is it pronounced Keswick? I don't know, but it is. It's spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K. I feel like these people should learn to just kind of like sound things out, but it's fine. We're going to call it Keswick because that's what they say. So I certainly grew up with the effects of Keswick theology, although I didn't know what it was. And I think there's a good chance that you might have too if you grew up in the evangelical church. Um, Maybe you didn't, but I, I certainly did. So what this theology basically says is that after you're saved, so you are saved, you've become a Christian, And after that, there's a second breakthrough that should happen where you kind of like truly let go and surrender uh, and let go of trying to please God on your own. And once you finally let go, you'll be blessed with like quicker sanctification, gifts, etc. So it's basically like leveling up in your discipleship that makes these kind of like tiers of Christianity. Uh, And this phrase, let go and let God, actually comes directly from Keswick theology. This is explicitly what they teach. It also comes directly from Carrie Underwood and Jesus Take the Wheel. But that is a different story, and I would not recommend letting go of the steering wheel while driving and asking Jesus to take it. I'm not saying he won't. He could, but I think it's dangerous. All right. First, let's acknowledge the good in this statement. Let go and let God. There is a way in which this statement is true if everybody's on the same page and we all know what we mean and we read it correctly. So if by let go and let God, you mean repent of your own self-interested agenda and trust in God, then absolutely that's a true statement, right? But the Bible already has a phrase for that, and it's just repent and believe. Um, So Jesus often says repent and believe, but he never says let go and let God. So why come up with an entirely new unbiblical phrase? Because generally, uh, that correct definition that I gave is not what people mean when they use the phrase, let go and let God. So in my experience, when someone uses that phrase, I believe Nana has told me that phrase several times. Oh, Nana. Uh, They're not telling me to repent and believe. They're generally telling me that my problem can be solved if I let go of trying to solve it. So again, this is kind of a means to an end. It's like, hey, do this, and that'll be the solution to your problem. Let go and let God promises breakthroughs in exchange for faith. So if you're not experiencing the breakthroughs, it's because you don't have a strong faith or a big faith or maybe any faith. You haven't, quote, let go. Uh, And Christians in the room, we are not immune to this type of thinking. So I was watching a very famous woman the other day who claims to be a Christian give her testimony on YouTube. Testimony is in quotes because it was weird. Uh, I don't want to say her name because I don't need to throw her under the bus. She very well could be a Christian. Her testimony doesn't seem to suggest that. 
Um, anyway, her testimony was all about how she heard God audibly tell her that it was time to step out in faith and start her business. Her testimony included God audibly talking to her several times, yet not one Bible verse. God told her it was time to step out in faith and start her business. He told her, as what she said, quote, trust me with your dream and I'll take it farther than you could ever imagine. I don't know who that sounds like to you, but that doesn't sound like the Lord. It actually sounds a lot like Satan in Matthew 4 when Jesus is being tempted. Um, that he's tempting him with all the kingdoms of this world. Lord, Jesus, just trust me and I'll give you all this. Um, essentially what she was saying was she let go and let God. She surrendered and that God made her life successful monetarily because she had faith. Uh, imagine again, just like the last lie. And man, this is so sad how offensive these lies are to people who are who this isn't their experience. Um, so someone who can't seem to get out of poverty or depression or drug addiction or illness. This woman is saying, just have faith and God will take your dream farther than you could ever imagine. So what does this mean? It means that if you have issues or your dream isn't going well, uh, it's your fault, right? Your faith isn't strong enough. You need to have more faith and it would be, it would be fixed. Um, a biblical antidote to this kind of materialism and perfect life can be found in the book of Job. Uh, it is worth reading in your entirety. It cuts against American prosperity theology so well, and it's a, it's a fat book of the Bible. I think it was the first book, like earliest manuscript, Trey's like, yeah-ish, um, ever written. So it's worth reading in its entirety if you have a few hours. Um, the dude who wrote Les Mis, which is some famous play about whiny French people, um, the, the guy who wrote Les Mis, who wasn't a Christian, said if he could only have one work of art for the rest of his life, he would choose Job. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful work of poetry. But instead of his business, Job's business, being blessed because he stepped out in faith, everything was taken from him. He's a faithful guy. He lost everything. His friends tell him a lot of things that can sound a lot like, hey, let go and let God, and this is your fault. Um, and so this book culminates with God speaking directly to Job. And Job just falls silent before the Lord. Um, it's a wonderful book to point to anyone who thinks that God wants them to just be rich and happy. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. That's kind of the extreme of Keswick theology, though. Uh, that's basically the prosperity gospel, right? Um, and it's not necessarily what proponents of Keswick theology hold to. So they usually hold to more of a spiritual breakthrough than like a material breakthrough uh, when you let go and let God. So they promise this super Christianity that can only be obtained through our effort of letting go. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot to say about this, but at its base level, do you see how this is really ironic? That they're like, hey, just let go. And so you spend all this effort trying to not give effort anymore and let go. Uh, it requires so much effort on the part of the person, but that effort is spent trying to get to a place where they no longer are giving effort. And they've let go. They're trying so hard to not try anymore. Friends, if we don't work to earn our salvation, which we all know that we don't work to earn our salvation, Ephesians 2 screams that, why would we work to obtain a second tier of spirituality? So certainly we work for our sanctification. We fight sin. We shouldn't be lazy in fighting sin. But if we, if we were to become super Christians and there was like a second tier, would that happen by our own effort? I mean, like, definitely not, right? This is one of the fundamental differences between 
biblical Christianity and twisted forms of Christianity that call themselves Christians. Do we work to save ourselves at all? No, we don't. Christ does it all. Do we, do we level up in our, in our Christianity? Not when it comes to justification and our standing before the Father. No, we don't. So this is where Keswick theology agrees with Mormonism, which is terrifying. I work with a lot of Mormons who believe um, that I'm level one Christian and they're level 50 because they were saved by Christ and they don't drink coffee. They're saved by Christ and they got baptized in the Mormon church. They're saved by Christ and they wear their secret underwear, which they do. They wear secret underwear. They think I'm saved, but I'm like level one and they're like level 50, super Christians because they do all these things. So let go and let God at its worst um, is the same thing. It says you're level one and I'm level 50 because I've fully surrendered to God. Uh, Friends, there is no such thing as super Christianity based on our works, right? There aren't tiers of Christians before the Father. Furthermore, we have to talk about another glaring issue with this lie, and it's the last two words of the lie. Let God. Let God. What does this imply? It implies that we have the power to allow God to do something. By our letting go, we enable God to do things that he can't do if we don't let go, right? Which is very dangerous thinking. Who here ever made a volcano with vinegar and baking soda? Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. This here is a classic science experiment. I wish that I could have done it this morning, right now. Uh, We all know that nobody cares about the science. It's about the explosion. You think people came to see your science experiment because they cared about your chemistry and how the vinegar and baking soda interact? No, they didn't come for that. They came for the boom. Make it go boom. But this is the formula for it. Vinegar plus baking soda equals big boom in science fair trophy. You do a certain thing, you get a certain result. You add the vinegar and the baking soda, you get the science fair trophy. God is not like this, right? You don't activate God by doing certain things and then get a certain result from him. If he was like this, uh, he would just be your servant, right? He's just a formula you're using to win a science fair. Uh, And this is a good thing, that God doesn't act like this. Any God who needs us to activate him is not much of a God if he's waiting on us to activate him. So if I could get some folks to look up some verses and read them for me, um, that would be wonderful. Uh, could I have somebody look up Jeremiah 32:27? Who wants that one? Thanks. And then next, could somebody look up Ephesians 2:8? Thank you. Colossians 1:29. Thanks. And uh, Philippians 2:12 to 13. Thank you. Okay. So first, Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Okay. Nice. So nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He can do anything He wants. Right? You don't give Him permission because you've let go sufficiently. Who's got Ephesians two eight? Not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. 
So even the faith that you exercise to come to salvation is a gift from God. You didn't let him do that. You didn't let go sufficiently to do that. Who had uh, Colossians 1.29? So Paul is toiling. Um, let me, sorry, I'm going to go there. He's, and at the end of verse 28, he says, he's trying to present everyone mature in Christ. And that's what he's toiling for, is for sanctification. But he's struggling with whose energy? God's energy that God is working within him. So even the power that we need to pursue holiness comes from, doesn't come from our effort of letting go, uh, but God working in us. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah, so we hear that phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. At least I feel like I hear that a lot. But I don't really hear it as much attached to verse 13, where he immediately follows it with, it is God who works in you. So again, the power that we need to pursue holiness doesn't come from our effort, but from God himself. So at the end of the day, the reason this lie is so costly and satanic um, is that you are focused not on God when you're trying to let go and let God. You're focused ironically on yourself, your effort, your trying. Have I let go enough? Am I still holding on to something? So this lie, what it does as with all of Satan's lies, it takes your eyes off the finished work of Christ on the cross and puts them back on yourself and your effort and your trying. And at its core, it's self-serving and self-exalting. So if you convince yourself that you've had a spiritual breakthrough after letting go enough, who gets the glory for that? Does God get the glory for it? No, you're the one who finally let go enough to have the breakthrough, so you get the glory for it. Uh, and that's the real danger. It's, it's self-serving and self-exalting. So Christ accomplished everything for our salvation, right? We need to remind ourselves of this. And he didn't make tears of being saved. So when we talk like he did, like you need another breakthrough and it's your job to make it happen, we dishonor Christ's work on the cross. The truth is, he has accomplished everything, right? He said it is finished even before he died. The veil was torn. Access to the Father open through a great high priest. It is finished. So there's nothing for you or for me to accomplish. So just in summary, lie number one, life's what you make it. In parentheses, so let's make it rock. How do we answer? We, we answer by saying, no, it's not what you make it. It's what God makes it. And Christ has made more of our lives than we ever could, right? We could have never bridged that gap, and he did it. And lie number two, let go and let God. How do we answer that? First, Christ doesn't need our permission, right? He saved us without letting go and letting him do anything. Even the fight to pursue holiness is only because of his strength. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we get to spend with one another today, dwelling on your word. Lord, we pray that we would be a people of the truth. Um, we know that your word is truth. We pray that you'd sanctify us in your truth. Um, Lord, we pray that you'd give us strength to fight sin. You'd give us strength to resist lies. Um, that you'd open our eyes to the truth and that we'd hold fast um, in the midst of a culture that is susceptible to lies and always has been. Uh, Lord, we pray that, yeah, you'd give us strength, you'd give us wisdom, and uh, that you would open people's eyes to the truth 
uh, of your son and what he's done for us. We're thankful for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.